Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles, Lord willing, for the last time to 1 Corinthians 10. Some of you will hear with great relief, others with perhaps sadness, at least in this sermon series for the last time. We will be moving on to the concluding section of Paul's extended exhortations against idolatry. Specifically, if you will recall, Paul has been addressing the question that was raised all the way back in chapter 8 about whether Christians can eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Pagans in Corinth would sacrifice offerings and the meat would be dedicated to pagan gods in these ceremonies and in these celebrations in the temples in Corinth. And then they would sell the leftover meat in the markets behind the temple. And so the simple question is, can a Christian eat the meat? However, the answer is not quite so simple as we have seen. Some people, we might call them the Liberty Party, answer the question with a clear affirmative. They would say, idols are nothing. There's no real God but the God of the Bible, so why can't we eat the meat? But the other party, we might call them the Legal Party, would answer the question in the negative. And their reasons for answering in the negative come from different places with varying levels of Christian maturity. Some who wanted to stay away from the sins of their pagan past concluded that of course it would be a sin to eat the meat. Others might have argued that eating the meat is participation with the pagan worship ceremony, so of course it would be sinful for a Christian to engage. And so where does that leave us? Which is it, Paul? Is it liberty or is it license? Is it freedom or is it regulation? Thankfully, Paul refuses to give us a simplistic answer. He refuses to give what many people have desired from me in these preceding sermons, which is a series of clear categorical rules. You can do this. You can't do that. That would have been easiest for all of us because we all like clear black and white. But what Paul does is he leaves room for faith. He leaves room for the Christian conscience. He leaves room for love. He gives us principles to work from rather than precepts to rigidly enforce. And in doing so, he gives us a principled framework that allows us to apply his logic to any number of related issues, not merely the ethical dilemma of meat sacrificed to idols. He gives us principles from which we can reason through whatever gray areas we face in this life. I say gray areas because life is full, full of decisions that aren't necessarily or explicitly addressed in Scripture. And in those cases, we must use our sanctified minds and Christian principles to make a wise choice. And that's where we're going to go tonight. We will survey Paul's concluding section where he summarizes what he had been arguing over the last few chapters. But let's begin by looking at our text, 1 Corinthians 10.23, I'll read through 11 verse 1. Here's God's word for us tonight. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market, in the meat market, without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, 
then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, that you would illumine the pages of Scripture, that you would push far away from our mind the the blinders of sin that cloud our thoughts. Help us to think clearly and humbly. Help us to perceive Christ even more clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it will be helpful for us as we move through this text to notice the series of principles that Paul gives to us. These are the lines that he gives us, the perimeter of the box, we might say, in which we may operate according to Christian freedom in a godly way. Principles that keep us from going astray on either side of the narrow path. And we need these principles lest we fall into the ditch on one side of the road or the other. As we have mentioned before, these ditches are either legalism on the one side, which sets up its man-made rules and regulations. It adds to God's law. The legalist usually has the best of intentions, but what he ends up doing is setting up a different code, a different stricter standard, and thereby binds the conscience and the genuine freedom that someone has in Christ. Paul speaks against such conscience-binding action in many places. He affirms the genuine freedom we have in Christ. In Galatians 5.1, for example, which says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul, one of Paul's major themes is that Christ has liberated us. And so do not submit yourself again to another yoke, another set of chains, another level of man-made bondage. Perhaps some of you have experienced such a legalistic mindset in churches. Legalistic churches are usually cold, they're brittle, they're easily fractured. They're very concerned about rules, about traditions, about obedience, and they're very quick to point out the people that they see that have violated their rules. That's one ditch. The other ditch is when the believer or the church swings the pendulum way too far on the other side. And take note that Satan is not troubled which direction we go so long as we are in one ditch or the other and not on the narrow path. And this ditch over here is the ditch of license, or we could say lawlessness. This is the ditch that swings so far wide of genuine Christian doctrine that it bristles at any call for actual holiness. It emphasizes freedom in Christ to the exclusion and neglect of any standard of morality, any push for holiness. This kind of believer or this kind of church makes the mistakes that that thinks that freedom in Christ is license to sin. It refuses to speak of sin unless, of course, you're trying to hinder their free expression of liberty, thereby committing their only cardinal sin, which is being judgmental. Legalism on the one side, license on the other. 
And so now in light of what Paul has said in chapters 8, 9, and 10, how are we to navigate the narrow road? Well, here's where he sums up his argumentation in our text. Let's look at verse 23 and see the first principle. It's a diagnostic question, and it is this. Is my participation helpful? Is my participation helpful? Verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Your words, all things are lawful, are probably in quotation marks. This is Paul most likely citing the, own, the argumentation of the Corinthians themselves, saying that everything's lawful. He affirms the commitment to genuine freedom of Christ. But of course, he doesn't mean that everything is, is permissible. Clear sin is obviously ruled out. The things the Bible expressly forbids is clearly off limits. Otherwise, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of this book make absolutely no sense. But outside of those things, there is genuine freedom. But what our first principle highlights is the fact that the question for every believer is not merely, is it permissible, is it lawful, but is it helpful? Does it edify that's the word does it edify does it build up and that's a question that we need to ask individually and corporately individually we need to think is it helpful for me to engage in this gray area in this activity does watching this movie build me up spiritually does my music incline my heart towards the love of god does purchasing this new thing or going to this new place or dating this person make me more holy, more like Jesus? Of course, these things may all be lawful, but it doesn't necessarily make them helpful. But we need to expand our questioning as well. That's where Paul goes in the next verse, verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. We are social creatures by nature. We live in community, both with our neighbors, but also with our co-workers, our families, brothers and sisters, and at church. Whatever I do myself is going to necessarily impact the people around me. And so we need to ask, is my participation helpful to my neighbor? Does me partaking in this hobby help edify my family? Does my participation in this activity or eating this or drinking that or going to this place build up my brothers and sisters? Is my exercise of a legitimate freedom going to edify my neighbor? That's the first question we need to ask ourselves whenever we're wrestling through this gray area. Is my participation helpful? Does it edify? Next principle, number two. Don't be overscrupulous. Don't be over scrupulous that's a fun old word scrupulous that means don't be unnecessarily nitpicky fussy fastidious another old word don't tie yourself up in knots verse 25 eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience see some people get all wound up and they can bind themselves unnecessarily into bondage over areas of genuine Christian freedom. For example, in Corinth, somebody could have looked back up at verse 21, which is about warning about participating with demons, 
and then tie themselves up in knots about whether or not they could eat the meat sold in the market. And if they were engaging in demon worship by eating some steak. The same can happen today too. I've had conversations of a similar vein recently. Such and such a company has established this new policy, has made this statement about homosexuality or about abortion or about whatever. Does that mean I need to stop eating at their restaurant? Stop shopping at their stores? I need to not go go to this place at all? The answer I give people when they ask me about it, it's like, you're free to partake or not partake. The Bible doesn't speak to the issue. You don't have to be all tied up in knots. If your conscience will allow it, and if it is helpful, you're free. If your conscience won't allow it, or if participating wouldn't be helpful, then don't partake. And that's the, what's the theological grounding for this principle? Verse 26, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God is the Lord of everything, even meat sacrificed to idols. He owns it all. Yes, the the meat may have been sacrificed to a pagan god, but it still belongs to the true God. And so just because it was sold to you from the back of the temple doesn't make it wicked, demonic meat. God owns it all. Likewise today, just because some pagan CEO makes a foolish statement doesn't mean that you eating at their restaurant is necessarily sinful. God owns it all. Whether it's Christian chicken, progressive liberal coffee, God is Lord over it all. And so you don't have to let your scruples prevent you from enjoying genuine Christian freedom. It's similar to what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5. Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So don't let the legalists bind your freedom And don't let yourself become so meticulous that you can only eat food made by a professing Christian and only shop at stores where everyone is sinless. That would be the only consistent way to go down that path. I'm only going to interact with people without any sin at all. Which means Jesus. No, nobody else. You don't have to live that way. You can't live that way, honestly. God made it all and he's declared it to be good and you can receive it as such and receive it with thanksgiving. Don't be overly scrupulous. Next principle. Don't forfeit Christian freedom quickly. Don't forfeit Christian freedom quickly. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So if you're in... Corinth, you're a believer, and somebody in the neighborhood invites you over for a big barbecue, and they place a big plate of food right in front of you. You don't have to lead with, now, now where did you get this meat? Now, was this used in, up, up the road at the temple? The point is, you, 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 we don't have to refrain from a genuine Christian freedom on the basis of somebody else's legalistic list. Sometimes believers can feel pressure to ask these kinds of questions because somebody has told them that's what you do if you're holy. They ask these questions in order to seem holy or try and impress somebody else. These are the kinds of questions that are asked with increasing frequency today. 
you go over to a barbecue at somebody's house and you say, now are these hamburgers made of organic beef? Did you get your eggs from a free-range farm? Is this coffee from an ethically sourced supplier in South Africa? The problem is this, this, this outward list of regulations. That is, you're, you're free to partake or not partake, but don't be tossing out stumbling blocks in the form of outward man-made regulations and bars of holiness. If you're going to partake or not partake, it ought to be done on the basis of an inward principle of love, not on the basis of an outward principle of a man-made precept. That's important. If we're going to partake or not partake, it ought to be done on the basis of love, not external coercion. It's because legalism doesn't produce holiness. It can't. In fact, it produces slavery. And that's a, that's a key thing for us to keep in mind. Keep your finger here in 1 Corinthians 10 and flip over to Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2. Paul's dealing with these legalistic rules. Colossians 2, verse 20. Paul says, If with Christ you died to the basic, prince, basic spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. There's the legalism. Referring to things that all perish as they were used. According to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Man-made regulations never produce holiness. And what's more, they enslave us where we ought not be enslaved. They bind us where Christ has freed us. And so for the good of yourselves and the good of others, don't give up your genuine freedom in order to submit to a yoke of man-made external regulation. Next principle Paul gives us. Be mindful of the weaker conscience. Be mindful of the weaker conscience. Verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now, it might sound as if Paul is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. First, he says, don't give up your freedom lightly, but now he says, don't eat the meat. Which is it, Paul? Should I partake or should I not? Paul just said not to relinquish your freedom unnecessarily by submitting to another person's man-made list. But now, in verse 28, he's reminding us of our duty to love our weaker brother. We discussed this at length in previous sermons, so I won't rehash all of that here. But there are some people who either out of personal history, past sin, ignorance of the Bible, they might have a weaker conscience in an area. And so Christian love would dictate that we be mindful of them out of love and be willing to not partake for their good. Well, you say, doesn't that put me in the same place as the legalist? Right? The legalist won't participate because he has his rules. 
And now Paul is telling me not to participate because of the conscience of a weaker brother. So I end up at the same place as the legalist, not partaking. Aha. What we need to see here is the crucial difference. The loving Christian brother and the legalist may end up at the same conclusion, abstaining from the meat. But one is driven by a Christ-like love and the other is driven by self-love. The legalist is concerned about his own self-righteousness, his own self-worship, his own little kingdom where he is the king. He's the Pharisee who's self-deceived into thinking that he's earned his way to God through his good works, through his passing on the temple meat. I haven't eaten any of that, and so I am holier and better than you because of my faithfulness. God has graced me. And therein is the deception. On the other hand, someone who willingly gives up a legitimate Christian freedom out of love for his brother or sister, that shows a true heart of love. They really get it. They understand how much Christ gave up for them and comparatively how little of a sacrifice it is to abstain from some meat for the sake of another brother or sister, a brother or sister for whom Christ has died. And so we are to modify our practice for the sake of another brother's conscience rather than letting modifying our own conscience for the sake of somebody else's legalistic list. Verse 29, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? There's a pretty good amount of debate over what this passage means. I'm just going to give you what I think is best. Our legitimate Christian freedom should not be judged by the conscience of another, nor should we exercise our legitimate freedoms in a way that would cause Christian liberty to be defamed in the eyes of another or offend a weaker brother. So let me give us a practical example. If I'm at a wedding and afterwards they serve wine with the meal, then my genuine freedom allows me to partake. Nothing in scripture forbids me from drinking that wine. But if I see next to me or at the table over a brother or sister whose life has been really damaged through the abuse of alcohol, then I have a problem. I need to be mindful of my weaker brother. Will my partaking of this wine cause my brother or sister to stumble, tempt them perhaps to violate their own conscience, or otherwise incline their hearts to sin? And if so, then it's best that I not partake out of love for that brother. And notice the the different motivation again from the legalist. The legalist says, of course you don't drink because wine is needed by drunkards and being drunk is a sin, so drinking wine is sinful. So he doesn't drink. But the loving, mature brother recognizes a legitimate freedom and joyfully avoids casting stumbling blocks in front of the weaker brother or sister from a heart of love and gratitude for what Christ has done for him. Both abstain from wine, but their hearts are miles apart. It's the heart of love. That's the difference. It makes all the difference of the world. Be mindful of the weaker conscience. Next, we'll move on to the closing statements of Paul in this section, which are positive statements and which overlap. But the next principle we'll see is be motivated 
by the glory of God. Be motivated by the glory of God. Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat the idol meat or not, be fueled by a desire to see God praised. Our selfish desires, our natural fleshly inclination is for us to want things, for us to demand our way, for us to demand our freedom, our rights not be infringed, that nobody better tread on me. But that's not a Christian ethic. Because you cannot simultaneously be preoccupied with my freedom and the glory of God. The two are opposed because they represent two different kingdoms. In my illusory kingdom, I am the king and everybody else exists to bow to my wishes. They all exist for my glory, for my pleasure, for my fame. But in God's kingdom, we all exist for his glory, his praise, and his fame. And this motivation of doing everything for God's glory is transformative. It means that everything we do becomes an occasion for God to receive praise and honor. And not just big, showy things, right? How we change a diaper, how we read our Bible, how we change the oil in the car, how we buy groceries, how we balance the checkbook. Whatever activity, no matter how trivial or mundane seeming, we have the opportunity to do it to the glory of God. Which means that we are aligning our motivation, our efforts, our abilities, all of them oriented towards the end of God being praised. The way that we make our beds, the way we dress, the way we speak, the way we serve, all of it is spent to the goal of God receiving honor and not us. Now, note that this call for the glory of God doesn't mean that we are adding something to God, as if God has some sort of deficit that we were created to fulfill. Theologians will distinguish between two different ways that Scripture speaks of God's glory, and the first is his intrinsic glory, or his inherent glory. That's the glory he possesses in his very nature. It's absolute, it's complete, and it lacks nothing. God does not possess some hole, some void that we have to fill. He is inherently gloryful, glorious, and in need of nothing outside of himself. One theologian, A.W. Tozer, recognized this when he said, Were every man on earth to become an atheist, it would not affect God in any way. He is what he is in himself without regard to any other. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections. To doubt him takes nothing away. Almighty God, just because he is almighty, needs no support from his creatures. God needs nothing, nor does his glory shine any less brightly when we fail to honor him. But a second way that scripture speaks of God's glory is a kind of reflective glory or responsive glory. This giving glory to God is an appropriate response to God in the form of worship, exaltation. We see this response throughout Scripture. Psalm 29.2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. At Jesus' birth, God's glory is shining and the heavenly host resounds with glory to God in the highest. 
And this response is natural for any heart that has been touched by the grace of Christ. And it means that wherever we find ourselves, as in Corinth, the temple meet placed in front of us, or today at the ballot box where we have to vote, or, or we have to have this conversation about this gray area, whatever it is, God has placed us there. And we have a duty to steward that situation in a way that brings Him praise and glory, not me. We align our motives and our actions to the end of God receiving the praise. Next principle, verse 32. Don't cause people to stumble. Don't cause people to stumble. Verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Some of you are thinking, well, we've already covered this. The pastor's repeating himself. He must have been running out of material. No, but Paul repeated himself. And I'm just imitating Paul, which he exhorts us to do in this very next verse. So take up the repetitiveness with Paul. Don't cause people to stumble. Give no offense, Paul says. Provide no occasion for their falling. And we do this for both Jews and Greeks and for the church. For those inside and for those outside. The principle is clear, but it's good for us to make it explicit. Whenever we're making decisions... Don't cast stumbling blocks. If you eat your meat, eat it. Don't parade around your freedom. If you abstain, don't make your abstention a show for all to see. If you eat or drink, don't make yourself the center of attention. If you go this place or that place, don't flaunt it to where others that might not be blessed by it. If you participate in a genuine freedom... But it might not bless others. Don't go around posting it online and casting virtual stumbling blocks. If you have this or that opinion, which you're free to do in Christ, it doesn't mean that such opinion ought to always be shouted from the rooftops of social media. What we do will necessarily affect others. And so don't be guilty of being oblivious to the effects of our actions upon others and thereby casting stumbling blocks in front of them. Instead... You need to be like Paul, who rather than casting, causing others to stumble, he sought to please others, which is our next principle. Seek to please others. Seek to please others. Verse 33. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This, is, this verse and this situation, this context is kind of helpful for me in filling in to exactly what Paul was getting at in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, Paul says, In humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. And then verse 4, Let each of you look not only at his own interest, but at the interest of others. Genuine humility will lead us to joyfully seek the best for those around us. And we'll seek to please them rather than ourselves. We'll seek out their preferences and consider their preferences as more important than mine. Right? It's a proud person that's always demanding they get their way. The proud man is unconcerned with those around them, demanding his rights, demanding people submit to his wishes and acts the way that he wants them to act. But that's not what we're called to do. It's not what Paul did. He sought to please others, which 
doesn't mean that he sought to pacify and placate everyone around him. The rest of this letter attests to that. But what it did mean for Paul was that he sought the good of everyone around him and therefore lived a life like Christ, which is why he would close with this final principle, live worthy of imitation. Live worthy of imitation. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul could hold up his own behavior as a standard worthy of imitation. He had sought to live out all of these principles that he's been teaching for these chapters. And he had sought to be Christ to these people. And that's what, that's what we're called to do, to consider others more important than ourselves, to willingly and joyfully give up legitimate freedoms if that's what it takes to love somebody well. We're willing to constrain our real liberty so that others might experience the love of God. And that is a high bar. I don't often like to behave this way. I like my preferences. In fact, I prefer them to yours. That's why they're my preferences. I like my logic. My thinking is always perfectly clear to me. Why don't other people think like I think? I want you to behave like the way I think you should behave. I don't like to give up my freedoms for the sake of another that feels constricting. I like to spread my wings. I don't like my liberty infringed. If I'm honest, all of that is because I like me a lot more than I like everybody else. It's self-love. It's the opposite of real, sacrificial, Christ-like love. And we've all been guilty of this, right? Children, we have demanded that our siblings give us the toy that we want to play with and give it to me now. Same thing happens in churches and in workplaces, on the ball field. We've demanded our spouse treat us with love and respect, all the while unwilling to treat them with the same. We've demanded that others submit to what we want to do rather than us joyfully submitting our preferences to theirs. We've all been selfish, proud, We've all been the weaker brother at one time or another. We've all been the legalist over here. We've all been the one guilty of license over here. We're all guilty one way or the other. But that's where we need the good news of this verse. You see, we're not merely called to imitate Paul, a Jewish man from 2,000 years ago. We're not merely called to imitate a guy named Jesus. We're called to imitate the Christ. And what is a Christ? A Christ is the name for an anointed one, the Messiah. It means he came as the one sent as a substitute, set apart for the calling of redeeming a people from their sinful selfishness. He died for a selfish bride. And he came to liberate prideful, 
arrogant, boasting men and women. And that's good news. If if we are trusting in Jesus, then we have been forgiven of our pride, of our arrogance, of our boasting, of our demanding, of our preferencing ourselves over others. We have been liberated, set free from sin and death. Liberated from faulty, misinformed consciences. We've been liberated from others who would seek to bind our own consciences. We no longer have to demand to get our way. We don't have to make our legalistic lists. We are righteous in Christ. We've been given everything in Christ, so there's nothing left for us to demand. The world can take away every one of our rights, but in Christ we have everything we need. And so trust, trust in this Christ. If you don't, you're missing out on true liberty and freedom. You too can be free. And to be set free by the Son is to be free indeed. Don't turn to your list. Don't demand your rights. Trust in this Jesus, the God of the Bible, and you too can be set free. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that Christ was willing to give up his rights for the good of another. Selflessly lay down even his own life that we prideful lot could be saved. Lord, work in our hearts. Humble us. Help us to be imitators of Paul and imitators of Christ, to live lives worthy of imitation by the power of the Spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close by standing and singing the doxology together.